Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the second episode of the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. I'm so excited for this episode. So excited. We have Camille Roan, local New Orleans stand-up comedian, also co-founder of Black Girl Giggles. She's fucking hilarious, so I did a great interview with her. Lots of cats were involved, which we fucking love. And of course, after the interview, we're going to give you a clip of her stand-up, which is so hilarious. I'm so excited for this. Let's do it, guys. Hi, Camille. Hi, Amanda. We noticed I just got to Camille's house, and since I've arrived, uh, two cats have shown up on the porch. <laughs> they just follow me everywhere. It's how it works. And I'm just impressed with myself right now, so I had to share that for everybody. <laughs> I've known Camille uh, through stand-up, and... You know, one of the things that I found interesting, um, she came up to me one day at 12 Mile Limit and was talking about Queer Mountain, uh, the show, and I had a really awkward moment with her where I was like, maybe she's interested in doing the show, but how do I ask her if she's queer or not? So I got really quiet and weird, and then I was like, so are you family? <laughs> and she did that. <laughs> she said, yes, I am family, um, but I wanted this to be an opportunity for you all to, you know, get to know her and keep it interesting for you. So Camille, we want to know about your life. Where are you from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? I guess a long version. I was born in Dallas. Um, I don't tell people that because I don't think that I wear enough makeup to like make it believable. I lived in California for a long time, which is why I sound like a valley girl. And then my family moved back to Austin and that's where I went to high school. Graduated high school. Where'd you go from there? I went to Boston University. How was that? Boston is, it's like the anti-New Orleans. So in Massachusetts, at least when I was there, happy hours were, like, illegal because you're not allowed to discount alcohol. So, like, it's a state without happy hours, and it kind of, like, sums up the whole puritanical, like, mood of the place. It's really pretty, though, and it's, like, super walkable. That sounds insane. (laughs) Even, like, I was at a restaurant today for lunch, and they had, um, it said happy hour, and it was just five to six. And I thought that was insane. (laughs) That there was like a happy hour, like a very specific hour. Because I'm like, happy hour needs to be at least three hours. Yeah. You have at least three different drink options and probably one food option. So No one means that literally. Yeah, they, they did. They did. And maybe they'll sponsor us one day, so I'm not going to say who it is. <laughs> uh, so after Boston, what did you do? Um, after Boston, I moved back to Texas. I did the whole 2010 there are no jobs thing and just like moved back in with my parents. And then I got engaged to my ex. And then um, I know you're, you're in New Orleans now, so I'm assuming that, you know, that didn't turn out so well or, you know, maybe you're still friends or... 
Um, no, my ex and I are really, really cool. And we were together for about four and a half years. It, I think that we just like wanted different things. And I was in one of those points in my life where I needed to like break up with my job, my girlfriend and like Texas. So I did it all in one fail swoop and moved to New Orleans. All right. And then you got to New Orleans. What'd you do? Um, I got to New Orleans and I spent probably the first year just like hanging out. And um, you know Kate Mason, another little yeah. comic. Um, she's actually one of my best friends from college. So I knew her before I moved here along with another very good friend of ours. So I did a lot of hanging out and eventually I'd like told her that I wanted to stand up for a long time and she just convinced me to go on at 12 mile one night. That sounds awesome. So um, I want to ask, I know, um, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but from conversations with you that you identify as bisexual. Yes. Um, and can I ask if you have a coming out story? I know we all kind of have multiple coming out stories. Um, you know, cause like you the to, one when like I just begged you to be on Fermi. <laughs> that was a coming yeah. out story. Yeah, because you had to come out to me, and I and I because I've been on the other side of that conversation, <laughs> was trying to be extra sensitive and just ended up being really fucking weird. But I know everyone has a coming out. I wouldn't even say story. I'd say more it's a process because first you have to come out yeah. to yourself. You know what moment. Did you realize yourself, hey, you know, this is part of who I am? And then what moment did you say out loud to somebody else? And at what moment did you say that to your family, which is always a big, you know, piece yeah. of that? And then at what, what moment did you decide, you know, I do stand up, I'm, you know, out in public all the time. Like, at what point do I share this with the world? Yeah. I know that's a lot of questions. No, that's <laughs> all, all thrown really into thing. one, but I want to I want to break it down because I think each of those pieces is very important, you know, to forming who you are now, not just who you are in your queer self, but who you are as as a person. Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant way of putting it. Like, there's different stages. I had always felt a little bit queer, but I never felt like a need to act on it. I guess if that makes sense. I'm, like, very, very bisexual. I, you, if you look at me, I look like the straightest woman in the world. Like, no one is thinking secretly. So in college, I started dating a woman. And truth be told, all of my friends, and maybe even I, myself, I thought, like, hmm, I guess I'll just do this lesbian until graduation thing. And then I realized it wasn't a graduation thing. Actually, I didn't graduate college, so maybe if I graduated, this all would have been over. <laughs> maybe that's why you never graduated. <laughs> yeah. It's still going strong. Yeah, you're like, if it's a graduation thing, I'm just not going to reach that point, so it'll <laughs> just, just go on forever. <laughs> and then maybe like six months after I started coming out to my friends, which was relatively easy. Like, we were in Boston. Everyone was like progressive and shit. They were like, this is just funny because you're such a slut. Then around the time that I moved back home, um, I started, I came out to my dad and my mom, which was interesting. Are they still together? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I have three little sisters. My parents are still married. They've been married for over 30 years now. They're very, like, ideal. I mean, they're crazy, but, like, it looks <laughs> ideal. No, congratulations to them. Look, if you can, if whatever their secret is, they need to share it with the world, <laughs> for sure. Because being married 30 years is one thing, but being happily married 30 years <laughs> and having kids and raising a family, it's a, it's a whole other thing. Did you come out to them together, or was it separate conversations that you had? Did you feel more comfortable with one parent over the other? Absolutely. I have always been a daddy's girl. I think that my dad is, like, the best human being in the world to this day. I think he's, like, the smartest, most coolest person. And he's always been incredibly progressive. I think before I came out to him, we were sitting and watching, like, the Rachel Maddow show. And he was like, she should just be president. She's brilliant. And I was like, Dad, she can't be president. That's not happening. And he was like, why not? And I was like, do we not, are we not acknowledging this? But that actually pulled a 180. I thought that he was going to be really chill, and at first he was. I told him that I liked women, and he was like, 
cool, do you uh, have to, like, say anything right now? And I was like, no. That's such a dad thing. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like, we just sip this beer and not talk about it. And you're like, that was great. Yeah, so that lasted for maybe a month or two. And then I started dating my ex-fiance. And when he, guess, I guess when he, like, saw the reality of it, he, he lost it. He wasn't chill. Yeah, I was talking about this with someone else where they're, they were saying when they came out, they, they, their parents were so liberal and so cool with everybody else being gay, but when it came down to their own daughter, yeah. that was something that they couldn't handle. Yeah, and it was, like, very surprising and, like, hurtful because just, like, it wasn't what I expected. And my mom, on the other hand, is always very, very religious, has always been very religious. Like, she loves Jesus a lot. So I expected for her not to react well. But in some ways, she reacted better. She was just like, whatever, I don't have to believe in this. I don't really... She just didn't really care. Did you come out while you were dating someone, or did you just come out just you? I had called my dad, and we had the conversation where he was like, am I supposed to say anything? When I was dating my first girlfriend in Boston. And then I came out to my mom when I was not dating anyone, but I had moved back and lived with them. And I went to go volunteer for a um, HRC event. And my mom was like, where'd you go? Like, what was the organization? And I told her, and she was like, this is ridiculous. Like, these gays. She just, like, lost it over the HRC. <laughs> these gays just trying to get their rights. I know, it's crazy. call the human rights campaign. <laughs> yeah, she was not too pleased. And she was just, like, going on and I, in anger. I was like, you know I'm gay! <laughs> I think it's interesting, people that come out uh, just them versus, you know, when you come out with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like, I came out, I had my first girlfriend, and then I was ready to come out because I felt the strength in this relationship to come out. But at the same time, I think a lot of uh, us staying together longer than we probably should have was tied into that identity. Yeah. That we were together and that I'd come out with her and, you know, she was my first girlfriend and what does this mean? Um, and we have to make this work for, you know, those reasons. Yeah. Did you come out as bisexual, or did you say, I like women, or did you identify? I think that I came out as a lesbian to my parents. That label's changed over the years. It's just... And how yeah. and how are they, how are your parents now? I mean, that was a couple years ago. Yeah. I'm not going to put an age on things. <laughs> I would never do that. I'm old enough that I can't even, like, count years anymore. <laughs> I'm like, ah, what are you? My parents are kind of in like a don't ask, don't tell kind of stage, which I mean, I live far away. There's like some distance between us. When Courtney and I broke up, my mom, she, my mom and my grandma were visiting or my grandma was visiting Texas and they came to my work to like, so I could like show them around. And I was looking like haggard because I'd just broken up with my fiance and my mom was like, what's wrong? And I was like, Courtney and I broke up yesterday. And she just looks at me and she goes, good. The most chipper I'd ever heard her. And like, that was it. So I'm sure they believe I'm like in New Orleans living a very straight life and like eventually they'll get like a son-in-law and babies or something. I don't have time to fight that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you gotta, you know, you gotta live your life for you and it's good. I feel for a lot of people, even if they didn't have a good reaction from their family, they at least know what's out there. Even if it's a don't ask, don't tell, even if it's something yeah. that's never talked about, you know, at least you had that, that moment where you don't feel, because I think there's a huge weight in just keeping that in. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nice to know that just, like, you're living authentically, and they can believe what they want. Like, I don't really care. And then, you know, another thing I wanted to um, talk about, because I know a lot of your comedy, you talk about being bisexual, 
Um, and you have one, I won't spoil, you know, I'm probably going to ruin the punchline <laughs> on it, but it's, it's one of my favorite jokes that you tell. Um, and it's kind of a joke about the future where, uh, it was just, it sounds fucked up to say this is like one of my favorites. But it's, <laughs> it's a fucked up situation where basically like because Trump and these conservatives, you know, are kind of taking over and trying to, you know, run our rights and, uh, you know, women's bodies and choices and those kinds of things. But that there would basically be labor camps where the gay men would, would do hair and the lesbians would basically build everything as they do and the bisexuals would just be happy to be there <laughs> um, and, and I love that because there's such a, a truth to that and in, in hosting uh, Greens from Queer Mountain in New Orleans uh, we've had several times where we've had uh, bisexual performers on stage and they're telling a story about a relationship like if it's a woman a relationship she had with a man um, and we've gotten a lot of feedback from people that why are they on this queer show yeah um, and where is this space you know for bisexuals in the queer community and I'm sure you've had to deal with this you know before so I just wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on that and if it's something that's come up in your life it's funny because it kind of speaks to how we were talking about how you come out like a bajillion times and I think that being like a straight presenting bisexual person like I'm not queer until I make it other people's business that I'm queer. In terms of not always feeling a welcome part of the gay community, I part of me is like, well, yeah, no shit. Like I'm privileged in a way that like I can run around the world presenting as a straight woman and everyone just like assumes heterosexuality and I'm just like, you know what? It's I don't have to be in this space. Part of me is like, I do belong here. Like, I'm not straight. And it's something that dating women, I'm always apprehensive about and kind of worried that it's something they'll be sensitive about. That's probably more worrying in my head, though. Like, most of the women I've dated have been completely, like, comfortable and cool and, like, confident enough in, like, themselves and their everyone's sexuality can just, like, be whatever it wants, so. But it's, like, something that's always in the back of your head, I think. Yeah. No, I, I can definitely you know, understand that. And, you know, the, the feedback that I've given as the host and the producer of the show when people come to me and I say, you know, the way I look at it on the show, I tell everyone, if you identify as queer, that's all I need to know. Yeah. You know, I'm not asking you to define yourself in any other way, but it mm -hmm. is a queer space and I want to keep it that way. But whatever your definition is, um, is really important. I have another friend who, um, she's bisexual and she married a man and has had a lot of the, those struggles, but it was yeah. very important for her that she's still comes out as bisexual to everybody, regardless of her committing her, mm -hmm. her life to, to, to one man. Like, they're not open, so it's just her and him. But she still has that identity, and she has yeah. to work really hard to keep that identity. Yeah. I guess it's kind of similar to... I make a lot of jokes about sounding like a white girl. I'm not white. I'm black. It's just because I grew up in a lot of white spaces, etc. So people will make assumptions about me, and sometimes my, I will overthink things and will worry about people's reaction to me in black spaces. And, like, the way I sound or actions or mannerisms, etc., don't take away from my blackness just the way that if I date dudes, that doesn't take away from my queerness either. Yeah, no, I really, I really like the way that you put that. That makes, that makes sense. And, you know, it is, I think it's important to keep that. And it's also, there's always, you know, there's this discussion of cross-sectionality mm -hmm. where, you know, it's everything. Like, I'm, I identify as a lesbian. I'm uh, Jewish. I'm from California. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, so you have all these different, like, cross-sections that, depending on who you're inter interacting with, you might yeah. need to push one or all of them or really just be clear on that. Because, you know, so, like, I guess for me being Jewish, like, people don't look at me and they say, 
oh, she's Jewish. Yeah. You know? So I've been in a lot of spaces where people have been talking shit about Jewish people, mm-hmm. and then I have to decide in that moment. And sometimes I decide to say something, and yeah. sometimes I don't feel... I either don't feel like engaging, or I honestly don't think it's safe to engage. Yeah, and you get tired. Like, it's fatigue. Yeah, it's sometimes. exhausting. And But you have that decision to make with certain... I think also, you know, being gay, I don't... So, like, my girlfriend's like, you look gay. And I'm like, you only say that because you know me. <laughs> like, but a lot of people don't. I still get hit on by many dudes at bars inappropriately. And I still, you know, can walk in that space if I, if I choose to. So yeah. it's that coming out that you have to decide all the time. And it's not just with being queer. I feel like there's other, you know, aspects of your life yeah. that you have to do that for. It was the first time you started doing stand-up. That was, you said, 12 Mile Limit. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been doing stand-up? I've been doing stand-up for about a year now. And what's your, what was your process before you first got up? Before I first got up, I went uh, to every open mic in town, and all I would do at work is just listen. I would just listen to female comics, specifically female yeah. comics, um, just over and over. I like memorized their bits and their pieces, and I, I would write them out and break it down. I did all this research, and I would hit all the mics, and I would... You're such a comedy nerd. <laughs> And I was just obsessed, and I probably looked like a stalker, because they'd yeah. see me there, and I wasn't going up, but yeah. I was like, I wanted to take it all in and absorb it, and then, you know, six months after that, I finally pushed myself yeah. uh, to get up on stage. What was your process, or were you like, fuck it, I'm just going to go up, or? I had always watched a lot of stand-up comedy, just, like, always really enjoyed it, specifically if it were, like, women, or, like, not straight white dudes. But in Austin, before I made my big life change, I actually started taking a comedy, um, like a stand-up class. Super wonky. It was a weird weekly ritual. Can I just ask, what is a stand-up class? I always wondered. I was like, why don't they teach stand-up? And then I was like, because you can't. All you teach is, hey, there's a setup and a punchline. Yeah. Figure it out. Like, what does a stand-up class look like? They teach you that you need a laugh every 10 to 15 seconds, which is like something you hear. If, like, people are dissecting how to do stand-up. Sounds like a lot of pressure. You know what was really good about it? Like, the first class that we went to, I think that, like, the students thought we were just going to, like, sit and hear a lecture about comedy. But the first class, he was like, all right, here's your fake mic, stand up, and, like, tell jokes. And that was, like, you hadn't written anything. Like, you weren't prepared. So I think that in some ways it helped, like, break you of that initial, like, fear which was really good. Um, in terms of like what you learn about how to write a joke, it's not. So it's more about just getting you comfortable with you. Yeah, I think so. And like, I'm nerdy about things. Like there's like probably 10 comedy books in my bookshelf just because like when I want to learn about something, like I want to read about it, whether or not it's useful. So yeah, it was helpful for me in that way. Who are some of your favorite stand-ups? Okay, Apartment on Sherlock is definitely a favorite. Jessica Williams. She's funny. I am insanely in love with Jessica Williams and Phoebe Robinson. I feel like they are the patron saints of, like, black girls who sound white. (laughs) So I just really appreciate hearing them. And I'm embarrassed to say this. I really am. But I like Amy. I like Amy Schumer. I love Amy Schumer. And I know we can talk about controversy with her probably all day. um, But I respect the fuck out of her. And I'll say that. I mean, she's you know, opened a lot of doors for a lot of folks, and, you know, she had a, a 2010 special called Cutting, Yeah, um, and that's one of the ones I would listen to over and over, because one thing with her, whether you like her or not, she can write a joke. Yes. She understands how stand-up works, and she can write a fucking joke, and I appreciate that so much. And I think that in terms of, like, mainstream comedy, and we can talk about urban comedy being completely different, because there's a long tradition of, quote-unquote, like, urban comics being loud and body and, like, 
brassy, I don't even know if that's a word, but in terms of what's called mainstream, I think that her, Chelsea Handler, and obviously more established space for women to be gross and sexual. And the thing about Amy Schumer is sometimes I don't think that she's the funniest person in the world, but she reminds me of the women that I know in my life who are like unapologetically like humans. Yeah. And I think for her too, she came, like she blew the fuck up. Yeah. And uh, people were pulling her. They're still pulling her in a million directions. She has her show. She has train wreck. She had two specials that were filmed within like a year or two mm-hmm. of each other. That's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. And then there's also now you have this niche audience. One thing um, that I find you know really interesting with stand-ups uh, on the local level is we perform. I perform mostly at bars. Yeah. And I feel like you do too because we're performing <laughs> in the same places. Yeah. And you don't know who the fuck's going to show up. And sometimes yeah. they're not even there for comedy. So you have more of a goal to reach out to, to people that might not normally you know, be your audience. But once you're more established, you get that audience. Mm-hmm. The problem with some comics, and I think Amy Schumer fell into this, is you get this niche audience that you might not want. Yeah. Regardless, like Dane Cook. I mean, Dane Cook got pigeonholed as like the bro guy, and then he tried to do comedy that wasn't bro-y, and people didn't want to fucking hear it because the yeah. people that are his fans were expecting a certain thing They're from like, him. They're like, greatest hits, greatest hits, and you're like, I want to be more creative and... And Chris Rock had this, too, when he started yeah. getting political. Mm-hmm. People didn't want him to get political. And he had, you know, a, a lot of backlash from that. And, you know, so I always think that's interesting. That it's a struggle. And I'm like, I can't wait till I have my audience that shows up because they want to see me. Yeah. Specifically, because they know my comedy and they're more aligned with my views mm-hmm. versus just anybody at the bar. And then there's a struggle, too, of, like, once you get that, it might not be what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, and I think that... God, I've only been doing this for a year, so I don't know what the fuck, like, comedians say. Am I allowed to curse? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're allowed to fucking curse. (laughs) I can't help it. It's in my Uh, blood. Yeah. (laughs) But I think so much of writing is switching styles and genres and, like, okay, I normally talk about, like, how slutty I am, but, like, actually, I would like to talk about politics and, like, I can't imagine that not being a part of the process once you hit big or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think, too, there's certain veins you hit. Like, a lot of my comedy is about me being gay. And it's because that's, I think, especially, you know, with the coming out process. Like, I didn't come out until I was 23, Mm -hmm. and then still, you know, uh, figuring out my queer identity, that that just... uh, started coming out of me in comedy whether whether I try to write a joke about Los Angeles or a cat or whatever it ends up being a lesbian joke yeah no matter what well I mean LA and cats are pretty yeah yeah (laughs) that's true that's true but LA it's all about like not eating so then you just go to like eating pussy right away (laughs) and then cat cat lady lesbians love cats it's (laughs) a lot of like I'll tell you my process. I tell everyone that. But I think, you know, after about a year doing comedy is when I really started hitting that vein. So, yeah. Um, and, and I stopped doing I used to do some more topical stuff because it's easier to write mm-hmm. and it grabs your audience, you know. And especially, you know, when Trump became president, it was really hard not to do topical stuff. You're also, like, you just need to get stuff off of your chest. I sometimes joke that, like, I started comedy because I wanted to tell white people that, like, plantation weddings weren't okay. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Don't touch my hair. <laughs> yeah, don't touch my hair. Don't get married in a plantation. And now uh, Yeah, you have a joke about not, like, you know, saving the white girls and <laughs> uh, not having them touch your hair. And I, and I see some, a lot of people in the audience that are like... I know that. <laughs> and it's cool to have to relate to people in that way. And I know, you know, with a lot of the bisexual stuff that people relate, you yeah. know, just from the feedback from your Queer Mountain stuff, that they're really appreciative that you're willing to put that out there. Oh, that's like so sweet. What are your uh, comedy goals? You know, what would be your ultimate 
where you want to end up with this? Are you not sure? Are you just quit my day job? <laughs> I don't want to have to go there every day. <laughs> That's always number one. <laughs> yeah. I think that in the last year, I have kind of, this might sound like super existential, I'm sorry, it might sound douchey, but I think that I have really kind of focused in on the things that make me really happy. Probably just because I'm so goddamn pissed off about Donald Trump, a lot of that has been like trying to like live my values, like don't talk about it, be about it. It's really just a rap lyric, but <laughs> I've internalized it. So I'm Activism is too lofty of a word for what I do because I just go on like Facebook fights and then like every once in a while I'll go to like the right event. <laughs> but trying to be a part of like social justice conversations, I love to dance. That's like my second passion. And then telling jokes is what I want to do. So comedy wise, what I want to do is I want to occupy a space where I can share my perspective, whether that be through jokes or writing and advocate God, that sounds so fucking self-important. But, I don't know, my dream person is, like, Hari Kondabolu or W. Kim Bell, where a lot of their comedy is political and they're speaking from a certain perspective and doing it in a funny, entertaining, sometimes accessible if you were a coastal elite liberal. So, yeah, that's probably, like, my dream, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, one of my favorite comics is Margaret Cho. Oh, uh, Yes. One of the things that I, the spaces that I'd love to get to, because I think she does such a great job of balancing this, is she'll talk to you about something serious and dramatic that happened for yeah. like three to five minutes, and then she'll immediately go into a joke that makes you, switches you from that serious space to that funny space. Yeah. And she does it so seamlessly that you don't even realize. She's so good at being silly and br like brilliant at the same time. Like it's goofy, but it's meaningful. Yeah, and that's a, that's a space I've continually tried to occupy, but um, not there quite yet. <laughs> She's only been doing this, like, 30 years. I mean, like, next week you'll be there. Yeah. Have you ever uh, met any famous comedians? I met Jeff Ross and Eric Andre one night when they were at Siberia. Did you have, have a good interaction with them? Yeah, like, I hung out with Jeff Ross. Um, we, like, talked for a long time and whatnot. I feel like comics and, like touring comics when they get to New Orleans who are like big names they get the New Orleans effect so they just get like lit and they're like oh my god we're here to like rage which is great for us because we can do that with them um so yeah they were lovely um I told Eric Andre that his show the Eric Andre show was just fucking weird <laughs> like, <laughs> it was fucking weird that was my only I was like standing next to him in this bar and I like leaned over and I was like the Eric Andre show was fucking weird and he was just like yeah it is. <laughs> no, I love that. It's, it's crazy, and you're like, what is happening? But you're also like, you're doing your thing, and this is yeah. fucking great. I was thinking about that because with Margaret Cho, I actually um, met her in Shreveport at the Gay and Lesbian Shreveport uh, Film Festival. That was awesome. Um, and it was a very... I was a little disappointed by the meeting. Like, I was so excited because she's just one of my fucking idols. And she's been such a pro-gay advocate yeah. from Jump, from 93 when she did a special, when nobody's talking about mm -hmm. it. And she was always out there, and I thought it was so cool. And, of course, I went up to her, and I think she was, like, high as fuck because <laughs> um, she was answering very slowly. And, you know, but I was just like, man, I've, like, seen you perform in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, and I'm meeting you in fucking Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah. That's and that's funny. yeah, and she was like, uh huh, like literally said, no, and I was like, all right, nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, and I, I did get a picture with her though. <laughs> I was like, I'm getting this fucking picture regardless. And then she gave a speech at the festival, and she said, everyone keeps coming up to me and saying it's weird to meet you in Shreveport. So I think she was conscious about like, why am I in Shreveport? I should be in Los Angeles and San Francisco. 
Um, I think a lot of people in Shreveport ask that of themselves every day. Yeah, yeah, no, and Shreveport is an interesting place. One of my uh, girlfriends lived there while we were dating, and that so that was my limited exposure yeah. uh, to Shreveport. Um, and that was uh, one time we were walking down the street uh, holding hands, and this older lady came up to us, and I thought she was going to like curse us out or throw a Bible at us or something, mm-hmm. and instead she asked us for a threesome. Wow! And so I was like, they're coming a long way. So unexpected. Yeah. And uh, when is uh, Black Girl Giggles Fest? Black Girl Giggles Festival will be over Essence Fest weekend starting July 4th, and I believe running through the 9th? Yeah, running through the 9th of this year. Cool. And just one more question before we get out of here. I know we talked about, you know, your stand-up kind of arch and what you're, you're looking to do or your arc. What's your... I, I'm interested in your writing process mm-hmm. and how you develop jokes. So, when I first started, um, I remember I was at 12 Mile, and Chuck Kelly, she's um, another queer comedian, she um, was based in New Orleans for about two years, and she recently moved back to D.C., but she's a member of Black Girl Giggles. But she's been in the game for, like, so long, and it's just She's fantastic. Brilliant. She's hilarious. You should check out Chuck Kelly. But she was standing over my shoulder, not over my shoulder, because she's shorter than me, <laughs> before I went on stage, and she told me, like, you're writing paragraphs, you need to write bullet points, and... Shep just gets on my nerves sometimes because we're very good friends. And I was like, whatever, Shep, leave me alone. I'm, like, (laughs) self-conscious. And then, like, the more I started writing, the more it became, the more comfortable I got. I realized that I can write a bullet point. If it's a brand, brand, brand new joke, like an idea that's just come into my head, then sometimes I will write the paragraph out. But, like, I know that I'm not comfortable with the joke until it's just a bullet point, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and then you, like, spend more time writing transitions than you do. Yeah, once you get that nugget. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, Shep's fantastic. Shep Kelly also check Shep out for sure. And then when you do storytelling, because Queer Mountain's a storytelling show mostly, mm-hmm. we have a mix of, you know, stand-ups and storytellers, and I tell the performers that are doing the show, you know, I don't put any restrictions on people except for the time. <laughs> Uh, which is, you know, because they're like, what should I do? What should I talk about? Whatever you want. But you have, you know, eight minutes, maybe ten, depending on the show. Because um, there's another show afterwards. So that's the only restriction we have. You can curse. You can talk about anything in the world. Um, but I think storytelling is a different process. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, you know, if, if you still start with the same or, you know, what your process is when you're story writing versus, or storytelling uh, versus doing stand-up. Well, the first thing I do is I piss my pants because I'm very <laughs> nervous. <laughs> And I love Queer Mountain so much that I'm like, I, I don't know. I think that I typically approach it from a stand-up perspective and then go into it knowing that I have more room to expound and I don't need the pressure of, like, laugh, 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 which is really fun because it almost feels improv Like, I know that when I do Queer Mountain or a storytelling event, I'll have, like, an idea of what I want to go or where I want to go, but I allow myself to, like, meander more. Yeah, and I think a lot of um, storytellers who also do stand-up appreciate having that space uh, to stretch out. Because I know I have jokes that are, like, 10-second, 20-second jokes that are actually, you know, a 20-minute story. Mm -hmm. So when I get the space to do that, um, you know, it's really exciting for me. Yeah. Like, switching between storytelling and um, stand-up is, I think it's a good exercise, and I think it benefits both forms. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for spending this Friday night, and you're spending your Friday night with me. Thank Um, you, Amanda. And I did not spill beer on your floor. (laughs) No. But thank you so much, Camille. There are seven cats in here, though, now. (laughs) They're all mine. Stay away. (laughs) Stay away from the cats. I would like to get one thing out of the way. I'm 
aware of the fact that I sound like Malibu Barbie baptized in mayonnaise. <laughs> like, it's okay. I have spent all of my life as everyone's like token best black friend. Like, this is not a character. I was feeling weird today, and my go-to was listening to like the deep cuts of Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's where this went. Um, the other day, uh, this still goes into how white I am. Didn't mean that. Um, so the other day, I was actually having a pretty rough day, and I found myself in the burbs. And my version of self-care is apparently like a bag of Sephora, a bundle of sage, and a bag full of Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and I understand that Chick-fil-A is like kept warm with a hatred of like Bible Belt conservatives. <laughs> being like a straight white male Republican. <laughs> it's just like, nom, nom, nom. I don't care about rights for other people. This is delicious. <laughs> mm, Chick-fil-A, so good. Yes. <laughs> I really love talking about drink because there's always one person in the audience who's just like, mm, amen, yeah. <laughs> that person is like immediately my best friend, so thank you. <laughs> Like I said, I've spent most of my life as everyone's token best black friend. I'm trying to be more woke these days, and I'm not going to lie to you, it's because of the election. I feel like before last November, I spent all of my time just trying to be like a slightly well-read video vixen. So I like tried something going to twerk, and these days I'm trying to be like a lazy, Facebooking, white wine drinking Angela Davis. Okay. <laughs> so I gave up white dudes for Lent. And um, being inspired by fascist Fanta, there's a moratorium on white friends in my life. Just until we figure out what the fuck is going on with white people. That might sound racist, but like my best friend is white. It's okay. <laughs> I but I give up being friends with new white friends because I realized that really just being the only black person in the room means that everyone is constantly asking for a race report. Like they're expecting you to wake up on Monday and be like, all right, over here on the West Coast, looks like it's going to be a warm, sunny day with well-meaning white people. Um, however, there is a slight chance of police brutality. Moving on to the Midwest, you see this system of people who just don't see color. Um, it's going to mix with this system coming north from the south down here of brown people just looking for opportunities. And in that case, it looks like we're going to have a race hellstorm. Moving on to the East Coast, uh, you see, this system here has been developing for about 300 years. We call it white supremacy. <laughs> However, it seems to be strengthening right over D.C., in fact, right over the White House, and we imagine this system to move south and to work itself out into khaki-clad neo-Nazis. <laughs> Thank y'all so much. Give it up for your host. Yeah, yeah.
for tuning in. Also, special thank you to our sponsor, Queer Mark. Finally ready to come out to your loved ones and aren't quite sure what to say? Well, now there's Queer Mark, the greeting card that will do it for you. We have coming out cards for all occasions. For graduation, to let them know that it wasn't just a college phase. For stopping your mom from setting you up with the neighbor's son. Again. We even have cards for the guy at the bar that just won't take no for an answer. Queer Mark, for when you care enough to send the very queerest. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Queer Mark. We'd also like to thank our guest, Camille Roan, for sharing her world with you. We really appreciate that. Special thanks to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. And to Laura Sanders for creating our beautiful, cool logo with a unicorn. And thanks to everyone out there for listening, our friends and supporters. You can catch the storytelling show Greetings from Queer Mountain live in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Thank you all. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.